Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I was pleasantly satisfied with the Dungeons and Dragons movie. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I am loving the ninth season of Alone. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today we are drinking Ginger Snap Darkness, a Russian Imperial Stout from the Surly Brewing Company. And we'll be doing something we've never done before because this has got some high value, uh, high production value packaging. This is going to be an unboxing of a beer because each can is individually boxed. It looks like perfume is what it looks like. Uh, The box is black and they have the images and the lettering in this orange gold imprint. Uh, And the, you know, it's got this real sort of sinister artwork with skulls and crystal balls and hands with eyeballs in it. It's got a signature here, Ben Smith, head brewer, art by Eddie Wolf. You are a gem for queuing up such a such a prestige beer, sir. The the beer is as black as the can, and I guess we got a different experience with the pour because I got zero pour. I mean, I got zero head on mine. Did you have any head on? Uh, a little bit, not not zero, but not a ton. Um, I also I did not try to empty my entire can, so I left a little bit behind. All right, I cannot wait to tell you guys how this tastes. What are we doing today, Doctor Ralph? Feedback is an essential component of professional growth, and teacher evaluation has changed in most places across the U.S. over the last 15 years. What do we actually know about how those changes impacted school performance? Later, we read a study that showed retrieval practice is only beneficial when we have working memory resources to devote to the process. We reflect on what this means for students who may be stressed or otherwise not able to allocate those resources. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read The Rise and Fall of the Teacher Evaluation Reform Empire. This was written by Matthew DiCarlo. This was published on a blog. We're not reading a a peer-reviewed article for this segment. This was published on the Albert Shanker Institute blog. This was published on April 12, 2023. So I queued this paper because I saw some discussion on uh, academic Twitter, particularly uh, Dr. Kara Jackson, who was talking a little bit about some of the findings from this blog is basically a, a secondary author's summary and reactions to a much more substantial, much more lengthy working paper from a group of uh, like education economy economist authors. And so there is, there does exist a, it's not peer reviewed yet, but a working paper that is a scholarly paper that uh, is sort of the backdrop for this blog. And so this, uh, this study was generating some discussion about what is working, what's not working, what do we know, what do we not know about teacher evaluation. And teacher evaluation is something that interests me. That was actually uh, you know, the, the centerpiece of my dissertation work was looking at teacher evaluations. And so, of course, it caught my attention. It made me think of some of recent conversations we had with um, Dr. Paul Bruno about discussing nationwide teacher shortages and the fact that they are not nationwide and it's more complicated. And so I wondered if there was some similar conversations to be had about what's working and what's not working for teacher evaluation. And so I, I put it in here to read. I did not read that original paper. I didn't even look at it. 
that's not true. I just look at it. I just looked at it. Uh, and I literally scrolled through it. I just scrolled through it. Uh, there are pictures. That's what I've confirmed. And um, we they we can't really come to any significant um, actionable conclusions about the variety of approaches that teacher evaluation had because sometimes people did one thing and it impaired to increase scores, but then in other places they did the same thing and it decreased scores. In some places they did this other thing and some places it did this other thing. And, and I, I think that that's, a, I think that's a reasonable representation of his discussion. And that, that is a limitation of we're basically playing academic telephone right now. We're saying things about the things that he's saying about the things that another researcher is saying about the things that States are saying. So like we do have a telephone problem going on. Uh, I think that's a fair representation of what it's in this blog post. Uh, I have some questions. I don't like, you know, I try to avoid getting into methodology type discussions on this show because this is not a methodology. Yeah, we did discussion. that first season and we didn't like it. Yeah, yeah, that's not good radio. Uh, but I do have some questions about the methodology. But let's start with the conceit of what is the teacher evaluation reform empire. Um, because the both the the scholarly paper and this publication are saying there was generally this big sort of groundswell, this big movement across the vast majority of states in about the 2010s to change, presumably improve, the way schools do teacher evaluation. It was driven by national uh, legislation and national policy. Uh, but remember, just like when we're talking about teacher shortages, when we're talking about teacher evaluations, we must talk about it state by state because it's a very state by state approach. However, 44 states and Washington, D.C. made what the authors determined to be a substantive evaluation reform during their research window, which is darn near all of them. And that's a lot. It's a lot of states that made big changes to the way that they evaluate teachers. And so the question that the researchers and um, and the uh, author DiCarlo are addressing is, were those efforts writ large successful in improving something about education, the education endeavor in the United States? And there was a couple of, I did look more at the, at the, at the big paper. It was a big paper. It was like, it was like 70 pages. It was a yeah. lot of pages. And uh, Lawrence and I had a phone call this morning during our prep time, which we don't usually do. And we're like, are we reading this 70 page paper that we didn't realize was, was a part of this package? And we're like, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. So I took it as a free day. Yeah. Uh, I didn't, I, I didn't, I spent some time flipping through it. And I think there are two things that are important here. Uh, and I'm, I'm assuming you care what I think because you're listening to our podcast, but I'm going to acknowledge I am not an education economist. I'm going to acknowledge I am not, I'm not even competent in difference in difference type studies, which is what this was, uh, which is a relatively new thing that economists do. And it seems great. I don't really know how to do it. Um, but my understanding is the assumptions are important and their papers, the original, not the blog post, but the, the paper that it's based on lays out pretty clearly that there are two important assumptions in the in in their design and one of them is that their controls are good and i'm not sure about that uh so there were 44 states that did um that did big teacher reform what were the seven states that did not because that's a key piece in understanding whether the differences are are, are significant or not 
is are the differences. The differences are all compared back to those seven states that they um, classified as not having teacher reform. And I don't, I don't take that for granted. The they list them. They give the seven states. I can't give them all to you off the top of my head, but it, it includes California. Uh, and there's a lot going on in California. I wish that we had Paul Bruno on the show right now because that's where he focuses a lot of his effort. Um, but also another one is Montana, and Montana is the one that gave me that gave me pause. What do we know about education uh, work that's been going on in Man- Montana? I don't know. Let's do some retrieval practice here yeah, for a second. I, do I know things about Montana? Have, have I read things in this? Pa- have I read things on this podcast about Montana? In the you last have. Year? Holy crap! Um, uh, is is Montana? I'm taking shots in the dark. Is Montana one of the states that uh, did um, in, in, involved local uh, local um, indigenous nations in the um, construction of history and and social studies curriculum to acknowledge the role of those nations in that place yes Boom! nailed it thank you good for you uh yeah so i i remembered that when i looked at the list and i was like wait when did that happen because big changes don't happen overnight and so that's a that's from the the episode that it looked at the paper on standardizing indigenous erasure which was episode 056 and i went back and looked at that paper those reforms were happening and started in 1999 oh wow so it, I think, demands the question, what was actually happening in those seven comparison states? Because, at least in this one example, they're doing some cool stuff. And if you look at the way that the authors of this paper, looking at teacher evaluation reform, coded or um, how they implemented describing what was happening in each state, every, each of those seven states that was not in that total was all zeros across the board saying that they didn't do things like provide teacher feedback. They didn't do things like provide incentives. They were just straight zeros. And knowing, like I know very little about Montana's education system, but knowing that they were doing this super cool, leading the nation kind of revision of their social studies standards makes me uh, struggle to take for granted that their teacher evaluation system wasn't getting at least some look or perhaps isn't at least functioning with some of those markers of effective teacher evaluation, which I think would, which would then undermine their ability to find significant differences if they assume that all the control states are bad and they are not in fact all bad. And I, I don't know that for sure, but that is a, a, an assumption I do not take lightly. Uh, and so what I think one of the things that we could talk about is the, they broke down several key characteristics of teacher evaluation reform efforts. What, what, I mean, the real question is, how do we improve teacher evaluation for the per, for our purposes? And I think that's really what you're saying. Like, these are the things that are worth exploring further and nurturing and, and, and possibly implementing and, and, and taking a second look at. So what are those things that we might take a second look at? Appendix table 2B. <laughs> is what we're is what I am looking at. Yeah, you are deep in yeah. appendix table to be. It's okay. the second to last page of the paper is what I am looking at. Because that's who I am. Each state is uh, having a meaningful implementation of a strategy related to um, the measurement in teacher evaluation, related to accountability or incentivizing 
particular approaches or particular outcomes in teacher evaluation and whether or not they are providing feedback to teachers and or professional development related to what's going on in the classrooms. I'm going to actually hearken to something that I think was the actual, what I found to be the actual value of this blog post, not the paper, but the actual value of the blog post was the sentiment that he said a couple times that uh, one of the reasons we may have had some complications in, in, in poor reform efforts is that we kind of had expectations that changes would happen in a season that we had these like, we're going to start something new and next year, if it's not better, by God, we're going to fire some teachers and get some new ones in here. Or if they're better, man, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to celebrate and everything's going to be great. And it turns out that things take time. I don't remember exactly what paper it was, but there was a paper we read that, that said that when you teach direct skills for self-regulation, Students don't actually start implementing those skills until two years later. And two years later, there's a significant, there's a statistically significant uh, difference in the self-regulation skills of the kids who were taught those skills two years earlier. And, and so if you don't teach them, then two years later, they don't show that growth. But if you do teach them, then two years later, they do show that growth. So if we're making this year, we're going to do some things. We're going to test them in May. It's not what we wanted. These teachers failed. This school loses funding. Swap out the stuff. New things, like new things, because it didn't work. We may be calling it before the race has begun. And Ralph and I, you, we, from time to time, have to be mindful about when we're playing a board game or when we're washing dishes, stop, wait, do it right. You know, whether it's just washing our hands because we're in a rush to be somewhere else or or it's it's responding to a student with appropriate feedback to, to their situation. Stop, wait, slow down, do it right. That that critique or that that is sort of the should of the paper in my i mean it's not a paper but it's kind of the should of the blog post that we need to stop jumping to conclusions treating it as one unit of analysis reforms misses that there's a lot of variability in what those reforms are doing and that i'm going to use the word incoherence the incoherence of which reforms are doing which things I think really limits analyzing them as one group. For example, and this is in the blog post, they point out only 14 states actually require teachers to be observed more than once a year. 14 out of 44 systems that are classified as reform actually require observation more than once. And I regularly cite in my own papers for higher education, a study that showed that you've got to observe at least three times to have something that is roughly a picture of what the instructors actually do. Only 14 states are requiring even two. And so it makes me wonder if the question of is the reform successful even has meaning because I don't know how many qualities these reform efforts actually share. Observe people more than once if you want to know what's happening in their classroom. I feel like you could talk to just about any classroom teacher and they could tell you that. Yeah. 
if I stop into your room just one time, do I have a picture of who you are as a teacher? No. I, I think that it was as hard as that. We already knew one visit is not enough. We need to give teachers feedback based on what's going on in the observations to, as you said, give everybody time to improve and improve in directions that we agree are important. I think that's a fairly straightforward conversation. And yet that is not something that we have agree on at the, agreement on at the national level. Well, uh, Another thing that he mentioned uh, is this, he didn't, he, I don't, I don't, I don't think he used the phrase mandates, but he did talk about the value of voluntary behavioral changes in in teacher practice, in teacher reflection and evaluation and personal teacher improvement, that voluntary behavioral changes have a, a, a higher yield for change than, and I don't think they said mandates, but that was the implication. Uh, and so when we talk about things happening at the national level, um, you know, the, the cascade, the top down imagery, the top down logic flow presents itself quite directly, but voluntary change of practitioners starting with practitioners means that really, uh, educational reform might be more of a grassroots up type of direction than this. So the, the critique here is that, Hey, the top down national reform stuff isn't working. And that may just be because that's just not how it works. So, you know, I don't know, like maybe, maybe you're trying to assess a Matisse by how it smells, you know, like it's not really, it's not, he's not really painting by scent. So I don't know. Yeah. The, the other thing that I want to, I want to park on for a moment because I felt like it didn't get that much weight as I was skimming through the, the preprint itself. And it didn't get much discussion at all in the blog post, but they ran an analysis looking at a cluster of a small handful of school districts that I'm going to say they, cause I don't know who it was, somebody else. I don't know if it was the authors of the preprint. I don't know if it was, I don't know where the list came from, but a list of school districts that are doing high quality teacher evaluation. And that small group of school districts that were identified, not just based on their state boundaries, not based on just did they do reform at all, but did they do reform that has the characteristics of being effective? And the researchers saw significant impacts on the outcomes that we care about. They saw more student learning. And I feel like that deserves a stronger spotlight because I think that that at least demonstrates in principle that high quality teacher evaluation can be associated with higher quality practice. Now, is that something that can scale? I don't know. Is that something that is causal? I don't know. But I think that it deserves a lot closer look because the overall tone of this and the preprint is we didn't find impacts from reform. And I think that those two findings, both the exemplar group of school districts that do show significant improvements and the larger cluster of just reform without any, a lot of other shared characteristics not showing impacts, what I feel like those two things together actually justify is that we need more traits in common of effective teacher evaluation if we want to see significant improvements.
empower each other. For our second segment, we read, Retrieval practice is costly and is beneficial only when working memory capacity is abundant. This was written by Yi Song Jiang, Pong Yuan Sun, and Xiaonan Leo. Uh, this was published in The Science of Learning in 2023. Uh, the title of this totally, totally got me super excited. Retrieval practice is costly and is beneficial only when working capacity is working memory capacity is abundant. I I was so excited to read this paper and I was pretty happy to do so all the way through. Yeah, and all of that is why I cued this paper. Because <laughs> I knew that. We both like retrieval practice. And I know it's a big part of your life. And we've talked about working memory before on this show also. I, so the premise, and it made it made my heart sing a little bit because the testing effect is the first thing that I remember reading about as a classroom teacher where I was like, research is changing my practice and testing effect was the first thing. And what the authors lay out here is that that's pretty well established by the literature. They even cite a great meta, meta-analysis that shows we, we know the testing effect is great and we've known that for a while. But what they said was we're not quite sure there is a little bit of a difference in when the testing effect works and when it doesn't work. And we want to have a better sense of whether or not differences in working memory resources could explain when the testing effect does not work. Ultimately, their answer was yes, there is an effect. And it depends really on your number of exposures to opportunities to engage with the material. If you have high working memory capacity, pretty much everything is good. Gravy train, right? Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, no problem. If you have low working memory capacity, my understanding was they 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 had fribbles. Which I did not... I, they have pictures of them and I don't understand them. Uh, so fribbles are essentially cartoon cartoon creatures that they created with specific patterns for things that can be their body and their legs and their head. And there's a variability of there. And during the course of their study, they put some word associations with specific fribbles. And that's actually what they were testing the people, the, the participants on later when they were, when they were, or, or, or interim, whenever they were doing testing, that's what they would test. Do, can you, do you know the word that goes with this fribble? That's essentially what they were learning and retrieving and testing about. What I understood the differences in frequency to be is a manipulation of how much that particular identifying that fribble taxed your working memory. Identifying a fribble that you see in a high frequency is a lower tax on your working memory because you see it more often. Yeah. Versus a low frequency fribble is a higher tax on your working memory because you must hold many things in your working memory to still have it in your working memory. And so their findings were roughly for the high frequency fribbles that anybody with a large working memory or a small working memory could successfully remember and process and, re and practice retrieving. Everybody was generally successful. 
retrieval practice was better for everyone across all working memory capacities. Cheers. Mm -hmm. Love it. For the low-frequency fribbles, which was more difficult, they were more taxing on the working memory, the testing effect was only positive for the participants who had a larger working memory. And that the testing effect was actually negative for the people who had the smaller, were at the smaller working memory as judged by that test that neither you or I understand. So, so the, the shoulds, right? We're driving to shoulds. Like, what do yeah, I do with yeah, all this information? And I feel I understood that to mean, well, gosh, no, because you have changed my understanding. You have improved. You've expanded my understanding. For the students who have a higher working memory, give them retrieval practice. And it's like uniformly good. Yeah. It's good all the time. Okay. Cheers. Tip of the hat. Moving on. For students who have a smaller working memory, and it's not our job as teachers to identify who that is. We should assume some students have a smaller working memory. It is not our business to identify which of those students it is. But let us assume at least some of them have a smaller working memory. If we, if we give them highly taxing for their working memory retrieval practice tasks, they'll actually be worse than just letting them reread the material. And so we need to do things to support them so they can get a positive benefit from that retrieval practice opportunity. And I read that to mean provide more substantive feedback, yeah. which also has an impact of reducing the burden on working memory. You, Lawrence Woodruff, have helped me identify that an increase in frequency of exposure can also yeah. reduce the burden on their working memory. But it is absolutely our job to provide some structures for some students to be able to engage in retrieval practice where their working memory is not overtaxed. The, in the retrieval process, you know, we're recalling things, but there's also this opportunity to re-encode afterwards the edits, revisions, improvements, additions, um, corrections to, to, to improve one's learning. And working memory is necessary on both parts of that process. It's necessary for the retrieval, and it's also necessary for the encoding. And that is not new information, because when working memory is full, the hippocampus must make priority judgments about what must be encoded, because it cannot encode every thought that you have at all times. Uh, it can't. It has to make priority decisions about what information is going to be encoded. And when you are stressed, you that that priority system shifts to system one. And when you are relaxed and not stressed, that priority system shifts to system two. And this is all thinking fast and slow. Daniel Kahneman, whoop, whoop. I can't. I mean, you can think of it as system one is shields and system two is engines. And so when everything is fine and you don't need shields, you can put all of your power to engines. But then when there is an, a threat or an opportunity or some reason to activate fight, flight, or, or um, freeze. fight, flight, or freeze, then you, I, in my head, I hear the Star Trek captain of yeah. your choice shouting, all, all power to shields. Yeah. So... System one, it, the thing is, is that, you know, it's supposed to be activated, like, like you said, for threat or defense. But, but even if you're perfectly safe, 
if you overload your working memory, it's like, well, I don't know. And I, I can't, I can't really assess anymore. So I'm just going to assume we might be in a dangerous place. So you shift to system one. And when system one is making those decisions, uh, complex, abstract, academic content is deprioritized over socially relevant, sensational, affect rich, or directly effective changing information. So if a student is in a classroom and the retrieval is over their head. It's super complicated. They don't know any of the vocabulary. None of that has been disambiguated. They were on a field trip last time. And so now everyone's using words they don't know and they don't know anything about it. So the, all of these new ideas, all this new vocabulary, it's all going into their head. They're filling up with all this new stuff. They're a little stressed because they realize they're behind their peers and they hit memory, working memory capacity. When their hippocampus is trying to store information, instead of struggling with these abstract concepts, it's going to store more concrete, salient information like what that kid wore to school this day, what that friend told them at lunch, and what the classroom smells like at the moment. Or like just the emotional sensation of, I don't like this. Yes. And so that that is all background information before this study was done and they i mean they 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 didn't go into this depth but they they cite that i mean they referenced this kind of of effect ahead of time um so when i now know because of their work that there's actually like a regression that occurs not only oh well that was a wasted day for the student no it's worse it hurts their ability to retrieve successfully in the future it hurts their ability to recall stuff that they had prior maybe had some moderate success it's, you, we get some backfire we get some rollback um and so this reinforces i have at narratively i create a narrative where i'm always the best so this reinforces the practice that i have for my college biology students when they assert to me that they have other priorities that they need to take care of i write them a pass to another location in the building where they can independently study and take care of whatever assignments they see are pressing or threatening for them because if i had if they had this huge English paper that's due tomorrow, and that's all that they're thinking about in my class, that's shifting them into a full working memory capacity where they're experiencing stress. I'm bombarding them with new academic information, and that's actually going to hurt my own academic goals in the long run. It's better for me to let them go, deal with the threat that they are perceiving in their life at this time, and then on another day when they're not at working memory capacity and they are not stressed, then we can pick up where we left off as opposed to picking up further behind where we left off. I love talking to you, Mr. Woodruff. I'm just going to tell you, I really enjoy our conversations. The So listening to you talk, there's an important clarification is that working memory is not a static characteristic of, for students. That there are many, many contexts where especially researchers talk about working memory like it's another flavor of IQ. It's something that is static and is essential to you as a person that is does unchanging from one day to the next. And that's not the case for reasons that are incredibly complicated in a classroom that are related to the social standing of a student in the classroom to everything else that's happening in their life outside of the classroom, the availability of their working memory resources 
because that's really what this study is talking about. It's not talking about their just their raw size of working memory that is informed by genetics and perhaps might not change that much from one day to the next. But that is secondary to the amount of working memory resources they actually have that day to marshal to the academic content that you, the teacher, want to talk about. And it could be as subtle as they're wearing a new sweater and they're not sure how everybody, like, is this the sweater I'm going to wear every day? I'm speaking for myself. I worry about my own clothing pretty regularly. To, to as complicated as you want to make it. And so recognizing, and I love your story of talking about giving students the freedom to, there are times when they have few working memory resources to marshal to that practice when just rereading the content would in fact be more productive. And that's important. Like that would change my practice in the classroom today where I can, I can absolutely hear myself saying retrieval practice is good. It's better than rereading. So we all have to do it. Well, well, teacher Ralph, um, here's this new study that shows that actually my working memory is pretty taxed today. And so if I engage in your retrieval practice, it would actually be of reduced efficacy compared to if I just go, if I unburden my working memory, if I reduce the amount of threat I'm experiencing and I just do a reread. And I acknowledge that there may be some days where I might not do that. But today, I do need a safe and stable place where I can go do a reread. It will actually be a net benefit today. And it's the best I can do today because I have other things that are also on my mind. And so the fact of the matter is I don't have the working memory resources to get the most out of this testing, this, this testing effect opportunity you're giving. Videos again. I didn't know that was this, but that is exactly this. It is exactly, exactly this. And, I, and uh, because I wanted to empower their sense of self-efficacy, I said, sure, go ahead. I wasn't making that calculation based on any of this. I was just doing that in terms of of wanting them to feel like they are college students in charge of their own learning and priorities. But now, I... I, I thank you. Thanks. Uh, thanks, researchers. I really appreciate this paper because I now have even better defenses. Uh when I give one of the things that I um, I'm nervous about in the back of my mind when I write passes for kids to just go to some other place in the building to go do things that are not in my room because that's their priority. I, I have this. I do that because I don't want them splitting their attention in my room. I have this culture that if you're in my room, we're focusing on these things together and that's what you need to do. But if that's not what you want to do or not what you can do, then you can go focus on something else somewhere else. But if you're going to stay here, you're going to do what we do. So no one's doing their math homework in my class. We're going to, if you're going to be here, we're going to do molecular biology. But when you send people to other places in the building, there's issues of like um, supervision right? You got to trust those kids. Uh, you, you can't create a problem for other teachers. Uh, and so then you've got kids hanging out in the commons and most, most of the time they're self-directed, uh, concerned college biology kids that care about their grades and they want to, they want to do well. Uh, and so they're actually on top of that, but then you get an admin saying, Hey, you had this kid out there and all they were doing was on their phone doing nothing. And it was a waste of time. And, you know, and so now like, well, I was, giving them some autonomy to make choices for their life and things like that. And so understanding now that 
there's there's even more reasons why acknowledging that and doing that for them might be beneficial for your own classroom is really uh, affirming and empowering for me so that I can, I guess, begin to make arguments to defend my practice to other people. Yeah, even in a world where you did not care about student agency. Yeah. If you wanted to wield your authority to force them to engage in content despite their declaration that they had their working memory consumed by other things. Yeah. This research shows that that would be worse. That would be worse. To engage in retrieval practice compared to just simply looking through their textbook. And well, it also will help me make, um, I can make some better choices in the future. Because if I see a student that is expressing stress, like visibly expressing stress, I can say, hey, you know what? Why don't you not do this today? Because sometimes you get those kids who are people pleasers and they will sacrifice their self-care and sense of equilibrium to appear to be doing what you want them to do. And so I can say to those kids, hey, why don't, why don't you take a break? let's not do this today. Let's, why don't you do this other thing? Because I can read that. I can see that. And I can know that just when you're stressed, if you're visibly stressed, if I can see that a kid is stressed, I know retrieval practice is not your thing today. Why don't we find something else for you to do? So something that I will add as we refine this idea together, because I would be, I don't know how you would actually present this to your students, but I would be, I would caution anybody to not treat moving to, you know, reread versus retrieval practice as a surrender or a defeat, right? Like it's, it's an appropriate tool for the job. It goes back to universal design for learning's yeah. idea of, of preparing and scaffolding self-effective learners. Yeah. And so it's not like, oh, I'm sorry, like we gotta put you in the penalty box. We gotta like move you off because you can't you can't succeed in this highly competitive retrieval practice environment. No X line through that's not what we're talking about. Instead it's like, how are you feeling? Where's your working memory at? What will be the best use of your time right now? And is this it? And I can imagine some students are like, I want to persevere. I want to muscle up. And you're like, okay, let's let's debrief that when you're done about whether this was the best use like I support you, right? Your your emphasis on supporting the agency and autonomy of students, and I'm here for that. Let's do it. Yeah, I, I like this paper. Yeah, it was good. I wish that I don't wish. It seems funny that we don't have more to say about the actual, like, specific study itself, because they did they did they did a lot. Like, it seems they like did. yeah, they did a lot they in were, seven pages. Had a really precisely crafted experimental design, and then reran all of their analysis in a model to see if their model of thinking accurately reflected what would generate their data, and it did. And like that's pretty cool. Yeah. So the so it's funny. Like I don't have anything else to say other than good job. Like I don't have anything else to say about it. But they this is a pretty cool paper from a methodological standpoint, and clearly we enjoyed thinking about its applications. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, post-retrieval feedback is critical for everyone at every stage. Yeah. So feedback is good. Okay. Yeah, and that's in here too. Yeah. So that it's and failing to provide feedback is actually a marginalizing effect that prioritizes students who have large working memories and or, excludes or, students who have smaller working memories. Uh, um, and by extension marginalizing effect for students who enjoy more peace in their lives 
and discriminating against students who experience more stress in their lives. Know your students. How was the beer? Uh, Lawrence Woodruff. How was the beer? The beer was, um, I experienced it as particularly acidic. I am pouring number two as I answer this question. Um, definitely is reminiscent of the, uh, the Russian Imperial Stouts I remember. Very heavy. It is indeed very dark. So while I enjoy some of the fundamental taste properties, I got to work to drink yeah. this thing. I agree. This is work. This is not as bitter as I associate with most Russian Imperial Stouts, I imper I associate a lot of bitterness with Russian Imperial Stouts, and this is not as, as bitter, but it is really dense. It's like a chewy, chewy beer. It's, I, you can't, I can't chug it. I, I would regret it if I did try. Um, it's, it smells mildly, it doesn't have a very strong smell. It's mildly sweet, but it's not like a saccharine sweet. It's a, it's a, it's a it's a lower tier sweet like a sour ball sweet almost yeah kind of, yeah um it, it and when I drink it like my my initial impressions were that it was sweet but there's like a, a bit of stress and a tiny hint of sting in it and it I I eat the hottest Thai food I can find I love the sting I mean I'm digging this a lot orange flavored sting bourbon beer is great. Big fan, Surly Brewing, good job. Uh, yeah, this is worthy of putting in boxes. I, I feel great about this entire experience. Surly, if you'd like us, if you'd like to send us more beers to drink, I, <laughs> I am. This will be uh, Two Pint PLC brought to you by Surly Brewing, you bet. Uh, you know what? Uh, that's actually, we've talked about that before. This episode brought to you by is something that I'd be willing to consider if it were a beer and we were allowed to tell them we hated it. Yeah, Surly, Surly Beer Company. You don't care if we like it or not, do you? You're Surly. So just give us some beer and we'll talk about it on air. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll like it and maybe we won't. Thanks for listening. We hope your school years are wrapping up um, in productive ways. Do the best you can. We are here for you. Let us know if there are things we can read that would be useful on twopintplc.com. Otherwise, we will see you in May. We want to improve. So... So as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well. <laughs>